Hello, folks. This is your host, Tammy Tucky, and you are now listening to the Tierra Talk Show. We bring you rare interviews with the makers of Disney Magic. Whether they be singers, actors, Imagineers, animators, they have all made their mark on the Disney name. Be sure to check out the show notes, other episodes, contests, our social media pages from Facebook to Twitter, and more on our official website at www.thetierratalkshow.com. All guest opinions are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent the opinions of the Tierra Talk Show or the host. The Tierra Talk Show is not associated with the Disney Company. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. And from all of us here at the Tierra Talk Show, have a hoop de doo day. I'm excited to welcome this week's Tierra Talk Show guest, lyricist Glenn Slater, to the show. Welcome, Glenn. How are you doing? Great. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about your wonderful work with the Disney Company and outside, too. I thought we'd first talk about Home on the Range because I remember seeing this in the movie theaters uh, with my family. Um, and it, I can't, I still can't believe it's been like almost 10 years ago. We simply adored the beautiful song will the sun ever shine again you know i've I've heard that in various cabarets over the years with Mm -hmm. home on the range you're working with alan menken teaming up with him you know how did that come about well i had uh actually started working with alan a little bit earlier than that um i had i had been contacted by the disney company uh a couple years earlier they had seen uh, a workshop of one of my theater projects uh which was actually a uh, an adaptation of the Albert Brooks film Lost in America. And we had done it at a workshop in New York, and somebody from Disney had come to see it, and they thought, huh, this is somebody who might be interesting to work with us on in the animated realm. Uh, and so they brought myself and a composer who I was working with named Steve Weiner, who's a fantastic composer, um, on board to work on uh, a project that they specifically told us, they said, this is not going to happen. This is just like a test run. And they gave us uh, a script for an animated film that they had been developing, which happened to be Marco Polo and happened to be written by a then unknown writer named Joss Whedon. So you can imagine it was hilarious and brilliant and funny and all that stuff that he does. Um, And we wrote about six songs for that. uh, And then we never heard anything back. I cut forward uh, a couple of months and my manager called me and said, Hey, I just got a call from Disney. Uh, he, he also happened to represent Alan at the time. And he said, Alan has been working on a project with Disney and the lyricist isn't working out. I know that Disney loved the work he did on Marco Polo and they think that you might be a good fit. Would you be interested in sitting down with Alan? Which, you know, to any up and coming writer that's like, yes, do you want my right arm or my left leg? It's sort of a <laughs> no brainer that you'd want to do that. So uh, I went up to Alan's studio and Alan had already won his eight Oscars and 12 Grammys and 20 Golden Globes. I mean, it's a room full of hardware when you go to a studio. It's crazy. And the project, which he sort of pitched to me, was a sequel to Roger Rabbit or actually a prequel. Uh, It was the story of how Roger got to Hollywood in the first place. And rather than being uh, a sort of a film noir parody, the way the first Roger Rabbit movie was, this was meant to be more parody of uh, MGM musicals. Uh, So, so it was a slightly different feel, but that those same characters and that same sort of mixing animation and live action and all that sort of stuff. And we worked on that for a few months and they ended up um, 
dropping the project because I think it, it I think they ran the numbers and it was going to be too expensive. But by that point, we had written five or six songs together and really clicked. And when they came to him and said, we're looking at a Western, he turned to me and said, have you ever written a Western before? So uh, again, I, I jumped at the opportunity and we were off running. And he told a really interesting story, Alan Menken, about the inspiration behind Will the Sun Ever Shine Again? And it was, you know, it was the aftermath of 9-11 so what was that discussion like just to talk about, you know, how do we keep going as a society and, and, and making movies? Is it even worth the, our time anymore, you know, after this horrible event? Like most songwriters, I think everybody after that event wanted to express something. I mean, it was such an overwhelming uh, event, particularly here in New York, where I, mean, I could I could see the towers from my apartment and knew people who were involved. So it, it was sort of a traumatic time for everybody and many people came to us and said could you write a song for this benefit or for that gala or whatever it was that we're trying to raise money to help the, the survivors and um it was it was just really hard to do i mean it was it was just so hard to find a way to express it in a song that didn't feel like it was cheapening it or didn't feel like it was over over saccharine I, it was just a, a very hard find um and we wrote several things that we ended up just pocketing because we didn't feel that it was matching up to the enormity of the moment. And then we got the assignment to do uh, the song for that particular moment in Home on the Range. And for anybody who hasn't seen the film, uh, this is a moment where uh, the main characters who are cows realize that they are going to lose their farm. And it's the, the blackest possible moment for everybody uh, when all hope seems to be gone. And we just sort of looked at each other and channeled everything that we were feeling at that moment into, into that situation. And somehow by, by being able to look at it through the eyes of the fictional characters, we were able to get all of that, uh, uh, all the heartbreak and all of the sadness and all of those, all of those jumbled feelings into, into a song that expressed everything we were feeling about the 9-11. Uh, tragedy, but couldn't say directly. And it's such a beautiful song, probably one of my top 10 favorite Disney songs, because I, I just it, the beautiful melody and the words, and they love it, you know, and, and they love they love Home on the Range. And another thing my family and I loved, we actually got to see The Little Mermaid when it was on Broadway. I don't know how, but we got two front row seats. And we were totally enamored with the entire production. I was so enchanted by all of the new songs and it's such a big project. You know, what is that? What is your standpoint on that before you kind of dive in with Alan to figure out what other scenes need a musical number? Uh, well, I mean, Little Mermaid, the musical is very difficult as far as that particular aspect is because obviously uh, Howard Ashman, who um, wrote the original songs for the film and was really instrumental in creating the film as well. Um, he, he was absolutely brilliant. And one of the things he did so brilliantly with that is that he reimagined the standard musical, but didn't put the songs into the expected places where they would go in a stage musical. He really sort of reimagined the template, what we usually think of as the template for a stage musical for this, for, for a new genre. If you look at a song like uh, Part of Your World, let's say, um, I mean, it's it's one of the most perfect I want songs ever written. Uh, I, I mean, just smart and clever and 
emotionally intuitive and all that, all those things that you need. And it states what's going to drive Ariel for the rest of the piece so well. Um, but unlike in a standard musical where that would maybe be the second song in a show in a stage musical in the movie, it doesn't really appear until almost half an hour in and in the stage version until almost 40 minutes in, which is really late for the first time you hear your character express a want. And so as the writers of the stage musical, we had to figure out, well, what does she say before that? What, what does she possibly say that drives her through the first half of the show before we get to that song? Same thing with Ursula. Uh, Poor Unfortunate Souls is, again, sort of the model of a villain song. You can't write one better than that. But it doesn't appear until so late in the film, and it ends up being our Act One finale. You can't have your your uh, a character that huge in your show not sing until that late in the show. And so, again, how to solve the problem of what want can she express earlier than that that still makes sense and still drives your story forward but doesn't step on the existing song that everybody already loves so i mean we wrote an enormous array of songs trying to solve all the many problems of adding things to something that was already pretty much perfect well tangled's now on the disney cruise line the new songs for the for the show on the cruise ship actually do pull inspiration from songs that we had written for the film that didn't end up in the film. Um, we sort of, we had written things that were not quite as successful as we wanted them to be. For example, uh, we have a song in the, on the cruise ship show that kind of covers everything covered in the prologue in the film, the entire sort of storybook opening to the film in one song. And we had tried to do that for the film as well. Um, but there was so much information that needed to be told and so much of it visual and it just it just didn't the the song couldn't contain it all and it just wasn't working um when we came back to do the cruise ship show we looked back at that song and realized huh the title wasn't quite right and the music wasn't maybe exactly what we needed but the sentiment of pulling it all together and the strategy with which we had tried to pull it all together seemed to make sense and now that people already knew the story we didn't necessarily have to have every piece of information in that prologue there. So we were able to, to streamline some of the storytelling, um, come up with a different song and a different title that seemed to pull it all together better. Uh, and, and there it was. But we definitely looked back at what we had originally done to sort of find the clues. And, and they're wonderful. I can't wait to actually see it in person. I'm really excited for that. And, and and I know a lot of fans have been asking on Twitter. Now they have a petition for a season three of Gallivant. I want to make sure I mention that because I've been following it since episode one. And we had Karen David on the show, Princess Isabella. And she could not stop raving about you guys. I, I don't even know how you guys are cranking these songs out because it's almost, is it about three to four songs per episode? Per yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. We've written, we wrote something like, including songs that ended up getting killed, I think we wrote 70 songs for the two seasons. Oh, and because of the, the way the schedule works, we had three months each season to do that. So it ends up being, you know, I'm 30 songs in three months is a song every other day, pretty much. It's in terms of just a workload, it's, it's exhausting. But the project is so much fun. Um, we love the writers on the show. We loved our showrunners. Our cast is just like unbelievably phenomenal. Um, and the network gave us a lot of freedom to do some things that we didn't think we'd be able to get away with. So it was, it's just been a blast. And, uh, you know, who knows if we'll get a third season. We're all sort of 
biting our nails right now, waiting to, to get word yes or no. Um, in the event that they decide not to go forward with it, we're going to, I think, look at some other things that we can possibly do with it. Um, and certainly I think we're going to look at if there's a way to get it on stage and I, maybe there's other places that it can go as a show, who knows? Um, and certainly everybody who worked on it, we all, we all loved each other so much and had such a good time that if this one goes away, we'll probably try to come up with another one. And, and again, I, before we end our conversation, I have to congratulate you on your Best Original Score Tony nomination for School of Rock with Andrew Lloyd Webber. Working on School of Rock, you know, how many times did you watch that movie? I've seen that movie so many times. I've loved it forever, I mean, since it came out. And my, my kids are actually in a School of Rock here in New York, so it's like been part of our lives for years when Andrew began talking about doing it and it was, he began talking about it while we were still working on a show called uh, love never dies, which is a sequel to Phantom of the opera, which ran over in London, but has not made it to this side of the Atlantic yet. So much fun for me to work in that mode, but it's not really my wheelhouse. It's something that I had to sort of work my way to and um, ended up really enjoying when he began talking about school of rock. I said, okay, that's my wheelhouse. That's where I'm happy. And I uh, began lobbying a little bit of, you got to do it, you got to do it, bring me, bring me with you, bring me with you. Um, because one of my, my goals with it was to get Andrew Lloyd Webber to, first of all, go back to his roots, which are in rock opera and rock musical. I mean, he's arguably the father of the rock musical with Jesus Christ Superstar and Joseph. And, uh, and to get him back working in that mode back when everybody just had so much fun with his stuff. And to get him to write funny um, because there hasn't really been a funny Andrew Lloyd Webber show. I mean, I think there are things in there are things in Jesus Christ Superstar and things in Evita that are funny, but it's not really what he's known for. And being able to to work with him to create something that feels like real rock music, not Broadway rock music, and to make it actually work as a comedy is it just feels like uh, I hit the jackpot there. And he's so much fun to work with, and it's it's always an experience. I really hope you guys win, and thank you again for coming on the show. And before we end, I have three Disney uh-huh. questions I always ask my guests. They're just Disney-themed. I call them the Fab Three. So we'll start with the Donald question, which is, as a child, what Disney film was one of your favorites to sit and see in the movie theater? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, one of my, one of my um, clearest, as a child, Disney experiences was seeing um, the jungle book. And I don't remember if I saw it in a first release or if it was a re-release, um, but I was just fascinated with the jungle book. I, I just love the characters and I mean, the songs are amazing. Um, so that one always sort of stuck with me. I think maybe my favorite Disney film of all time though, and I never got to see it in an actual big theater uh, but Dumbo. And our goofy question, what Disney character do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person? Hmm. That's a tough one. But, you know, I've always been good friends with women and particularly bookish women, women who are literary and able to talk about books. I'm going to go with Belle. I think we, we would get along very well. And our Mickey question, if I asked you to name any Disney song at this very moment, what immediately comes to mind? Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's so hard for me because I am so steeped in all of the Disney music. Um, you know, as you said the question, part of your world popped into my mind, but possibly because I was just talking about it. Friend like me, because you, you mentioned Aladdin. I will say one of the things, writing for Disney, writing music for 
Disney, one of the one of the pleasures and challenges is that you know that you whatever you're writing is becoming part of one of the most astonishing canons of music ever created, and you have all these predecessors to draw on for inspiration and all of these predecessors that you have to kind of avoid doing the same exact thing that they did. I've watched all of the movies so many times. I've listened to all of this music so much. I think Alan's score to Hunchback is fantastic. Um, I think the, the work that he and Steven did for Pocahontas is amazing. Um, I don't know if I have a favorite, but gosh, all of it together. And uh, the Great. best of luck with your upcoming projects. And hopefully we'll get more Gallivant and, and Tangled in the near future. And we'll have you back on the show. Absolutely. Fingers crossed. Plain to see. 